you could turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And to give us a little context, I'm going to be, we'll be unpacking verses 16 and 17 this morning, but let's go back to verse 8 to grab hold of a little context. Romans chapter 1, verse 8, reading from the Christian Standard Bible. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So... I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. For, verse 16, I am not ashamed. Maybe Paul's words surprise you. Ashamed of the good news? I mean, how is that possible when you think of the good news concerning what he has done for humanity in and through his son and our king, Jesus? I mean, how could anyone possibly be ashamed of that? Well, Paul faced the reality that this good news was, 1 Corinthians 1.23, a stumbling block to Jews. His kinsmen, according to Jewish, Jewish ethnicity, thought he was undermining all that they ever believed concerning God, preaching as he was that all the Gentiles needed was faith in Jesus? Apart from Torah? Apart from the Jewish faith? Even worse, maybe declaring that the Jews were somehow less than because the Gentiles were gaining access to something that they thought previously was solely theirs. And if you thought that this put him in good stead with the Gentiles, well, read 1 Corinthians 1.23 again because his good news was foolishness to Gentiles, which makes it utter madness to Romans. A crucified Messiah? 
Resurrection from the dead, a power greater than Rome and Rome's gods? How many times did Roman officials in Ephesus or philosophers in Athens say to Paul, you don't really believe that nonsense, do you? You see, Paul understands that the pressures of a surrounding culture could shame disciples of Jesus in relation to the faith that they held in Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself warned his disciples of this in Mark 8, 38, to not be ashamed of him, which shows that he understood the possibility that they might be. As James Stewart once preached, not the actor, there's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. And wasn't Paul the same man who confessed when coming to the disciples of Jesus in Corinth that he came to them in weakness and fear and in much trembling? 1 Corinthians 2, 3. Hadn't Paul experienced repeated and intense opposition, contempt, hatred, slander, and ridicule? Open and outright shaming for what he believed and who he believed in? Given all this, I think that we might understand that it's not surprising that Paul would add this to the list he has already given us for his eagerness to go to Rome. Namely, despite what others may think, say, or do to me, or to you Romans, I am not ashamed of the good news. And I don't want you to be ashamed either. And he follows this bold and joyful statement with a number of reasons why he is unashamed in just two short verses. But here's what I want you to see about these two short verses, verses 16 and 17. I think that they are the text that Paul spends the rest of Romans expositing and explaining. So everything that he's going to be on about from 118 all the way to the end of chapter 15, I think in some senses connects back to these two verses. We have in seed form here everything he wants us to see, which means I cannot possibly scratch the surface of what is here in these two verses in a 90-minute sermon. I, I mean, you know, 30 minutes or so. I just want to see if y'all are paying attention. <laughs> so before we proceed any further, Let's pray. Father, we want to confess that we're not, we're not always as brave or as bold as we should be. None of us, not even apostles. Paul himself elsewhere asked for people to pray that he would be bold so that he would speak as he ought to speak. The same goes for us. And I think there's some really encouraging truths here for why we never need be ashamed of you or your son or the good news concerning your kingdom. So by your spirit, Father, show us now so that we leave today ready to live unashamed. Yes, and very amen in Jesus' shame-removing name. So, there's two points in the sermon today. Point number one, why Paul is unashamed, an exposition of verses 16 and 17. Point number two will be an application of verses 16 and 17, but first we need to get some explanation here. 
Paul's vigorous declaration that he is not ashamed of the good news of Jesus raises the possibility that we could be ashamed of the good news. So what is the reason that he could respond so vigorously? Why is he able to say, I am not ashamed? He says, he tells us, I'm not ashamed of the good news because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, Paul understands the basic and massive problem for every human being in this world. We are lost in and enslaved by our sin. We are blinded to this so often by the Satan and all of his demons who seek to keep us chained and without hope in this world. Therefore, whether we know it or not, we are in need of rescue, deliverance, of salvation that we cannot possibly accomplish on our own. And Paul further understands that the only power that can rescue every human is the power of God, a power that he says is contained in the good news and released by the proclamation of that good news. Isn't that remarkable? (laughs) It's what theologians call a speech act. It's that the good news not only announces salvation, but it actually brings about that rescue in everyone who hears it and believes it by faith. Words empowered by the Holy Spirit that absolutely and utterly transform people's lives. And the possibility of that in one sentence My life was changed in my early 30s sitting in a sermon where I heard one sentence and I realized I didn't know Jesus. I thought I had known Jesus all my life and I didn't. And that power is found in the words of the good news. And he is not ashamed because there's power in the good news to do that and so much more. What kind of power? Michael Bird tells us, God's death-defeating, curse-reversing, evil-vanquishing, devil-crushing, sin-cleansing, life-giving, love-forming, people-uniting, super-uber-mega-grace power that results in salvation, deliverance, and rescue. That kind of power. I want that on a card on my mirror. Don't you just like... Take note. This is the power of God. Of God. In other words... You can do none of those things. God must do them. And you can't even do anything to get those things working for you. For this power of God of salvation is for everyone who believes. In other words, to all who have faith. And while Paul makes clear that we are responsible to believe in God to release this power for our rescue, please, I want to make sure that you understand this believing is not a work that you do. Even your belief is not a work. Rather, it is a response empowered by the Holy Spirit in us that causes us to hold out the empty hands of faith to receive a gift. Listen to how John Calvin helpfully puts it. Faith is a kind of vessel with which we come empty and with the mouth of our souls open to receive God's grace. It's like little birdie chicks in a nest, right? Just <laughs> We just receive even faith itself by which this power is released. 
And who is this work for? Paul says first to the Jew and also to the Greek, which by Paul means just merely Gentiles. And why would Paul put it like that? First to the Jew and then to the Greek. Because Paul doesn't want you to lose sight of the whole story from beginning to end. Paul is merely recognizing how God has unfolded his plan of rescue throughout history. All the way back in Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3, God made clear that he had chosen a special and particular people, the Jewish people, through which he meant to bring his blessing of salvation to the rest of the world. And his first covenants were all with that people and his greatest and final covenant, the new covenant, would be through that people, through a Jew named Jesus. First to the Jew, but also to the Greek. In other words, an everyone good news from an everyone Lord. We learned last week. But Paul is not done. You're just going to see. These are like Russian nesting dolls, right? He just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper for you to see. He wants you to see why he's unashamed of this powerful good news because he wants you to understand why it's powerful. Verse 17. For in it, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. In this core seminar that I've been teaching on Wednesday nights, how to study the Bible. One of the things that we've talked about is the study of familiar passages. And not only is Romans 1, 16 to 17 a very familiar passage to those who've been in the church for any amount of time, but this phrase, this idea, the righteousness of God, is a very familiar phrase. And it is so familiar that we are in danger of assuming that we know the fullness and the richness of what it means. Thus, we, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to teach on these Wednesday nights more than anything is that in our study of the Bible, because we're such frantic, frenetic, fast-paced Americans, we have to slow down. We have to slow down. We have to stop and linger. We have to ask questions of things that we think we know what they mean in their fullness and richness. And, and do you ever think you're going to get to the bottom of who God is? <laughs> no. So I'm not going to get to the bottom of what, what it means, this, this righteousness of God. And we have to slow down because understanding this phrase is foundational to understanding the power of the good news, right? Because the power is revealed in it, the righteousness of God. That's where the power is coming from. So I have to know what that is. So we might ask, what is the righteousness of God? Now, before I answer with what I think are at least three aspects of the righteousness of God, I have two things I need to say. <laughs> Keep, work hard to follow me. Two things, then three things. Okay? It's two things I need to say. First, this question, what is the righteousness of God, has generated an enormous amount of literature in the history of the church. This past week, I read for at least eight hours through all kinds of arguments for the various meanings of the righteousness of God. Serious academic, theological, and exegetical works. At times, it got so complex that I walked out of my study more confused than when I had walked in. Just lost. Like, I thought I knew what it was, but do I even know what it is? Which is to say that a brief treatment here will not answer all of the questions or bring out the full richness of this phrase and the reality of who God is and what he does. It, it, it won't bring the fullness of that. 
Second thing I need to say is I came to understand in that exercise how absolutely important and critical this phrase in this reality, the righteousness of God, is to Paul. He mentions it eight times in his letters. Seven of them are in Romans. And because he will keep bringing it up throughout, here's what I want. We're just all going to take a deep, I'm going to project on you like my stress. We're all just going to take a deep breath. Everybody. All right. We're not going to understand it fully today. But here's the beautiful thing, because this text is the text that he's explaining with the rest of Romans, he's going to keep coming back to it. So we don't have to feel like we have to have it all figured out today, okay? And importantly, you don't have to feel like the preacher has to have it all figured out. Thank you very much. (laughs) We're going to keep learning as we go, and he's going to bring it up in different contexts, in different situations, and we're going to see different aspects, okay? So those are the two things I need to say. So we're going to see it in place like Romans 3 and Romans 10. Take heart. We're going to learn more. For now, here's three aspects of the righteousness of God. First, the righteousness of God is a divine attribute or quality. Righteousness, in this sense, describes God's character and the actions that he displays, which are in keeping with that aspect of his character. It is the rightness of God seen displayed in his relationship to always do right and to declare right over all the earth. Genesis 18, 25. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? It is the rightness of God seen in his rule and reign. Psalm 45, 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. Further, it is the righteousness of God the rightness of God that animates whatever God does, making everything that he does right. It's so different than us. William Campbell, the righteousness of God is first and foremost a righteousness that demonstrates God's faithfulness to his own righteous nature, his integrity, his self-consistency. It's a divine attribute. Quality. Second, the righteousness of God is a divine activity seen most clearly in his salvation on behalf of a lost, hopeless, and sinful humanity. In other words, his righteousness and salvation are inextricably linked. Psalm 98, verse 2. Yahweh has made his salvation known, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Isaiah 46, 13, I, Yahweh, am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not delay. Where his righteousness shows up, it follows that rescue is on its way. John Stott, God's righteousness denotes his loyalty to his covenant promises in the light of which he may be implored and expected to come to the salvation of his people. So we can call on him because of his rightness to rescue us when we need deliverance. For example, Psalm 35, 24, vindicate me in your righteousness, O Yahweh, my God. Or as John Zeisler has put it, salvation is the form that God's righteousness takes. You follow? Are you with me? Okay, we've made it through two of three. One more. Third, the righteousness of God 
is a status conferred upon those who express faith in God given as a free gift of right relationship with him because of a right standing before him. Some translators actually render this phrase, the righteousness of God, the righteousness from God. That's possible in the way that the phrase is constructed in Greek. It is the same way that Paul speaks of in Philippians 3.9, the righteousness from God based on faith. Paul speaks of effective righteousness, the effective righteousness of God as opposed to our deficient righteousness in Romans 10.3. That God's righteousness is a gift, Romans 5.17. That it is a gift offered to us and for us on the basis of faith, Romans 3.22. In this way, this righteousness is a righteous standing that is given to us by God, which allows us to stand in his holy presence freely and graciously accepted and welcomed, as you just sang, as full sons and daughters of God because of the crosswork of his son and the application of the blood. We stand right before a righteous God. Charles Cranfield says it this way, in the good news, as it is being preached, a righteous status, which is God's gift, is being revealed and so offered to men, a righteous status, which is altogether by faith, so that as in 2 Corinthians 5.21, in Christ we actually become the righteousness of God. Wow. That's staggering. And that's quite a bit to take in, isn't it? (laughs) Are you feeling like your brain is full yet? So let's pause for a second and review. Let me give you those three aspects in much shorter form, okay? The righteousness of God is an attribute, an activity, and a status. The righteousness of God is an attribute, an activity, and a status. But the question remains... Which one, now that we've answered what is the righteousness of God with at least three aspects, which one is Paul talking about here in verse 17? And I believe after much prayer and contemplation, it's all three because that's a really great preacher answer. <laughs> it solves all kinds of problems for you when you just say all of the above. But it is my current understanding and it's influenced again by my belief that verses 16 and 17 are the text which the rest of Romans will explain. So therefore, I think Paul has fully in his mind all three aspects at this point in the letter, and he knows that he's going to unpack those meanings and their different aspects throughout the rest of the letter. He has them all in mind right here in his head when he writes it. Let me elaborate. Let me say it a different way from another commentator to restate these three an attribute, activity, and status, what it means for us. The righteousness of God is his right and just initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own but his. Hallelujah. I need this doctrine. You need this doctrine because it is what is behind the power of the good news this righteousness which Paul goes on to say is a righteousness that is revealed 
What does that mean? In order to understand how Paul can talk that way, you have to have a big view of the good news. Okay? So by that, I mean do not equate the good news with merely the cross of Jesus. Rather, the good news is the whole story of what God has been up to in history and the world to save his people from the curse of sin since the curse of sin began. That's what he means by it's being revealed. In other words, God began, I didn't think about it this way until just a few months ago. God began his rescue mission as soon as man fell. He fell into sin and he immediately went on mission. Read Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He is going to send an offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Hint, that's Jesus. Therefore, the good news encompasses the whole storyline of the Bible summed up in four, mov four movements. All my... Uh, all my students in my Wednesday night class could tell us these four movements. Creation, fall, rescue, and restoration. Don't make the good news merely about rescue. The good news is the whole story. People don't understand they need rescue until they understand they're fallen, right? The hardest work of the gospel, as I heard one preacher say, is not getting people to understand the good news. It's getting them to see they're lost. Once they know they're lost, they are ready to hear about rescue. So we need to tell them the whole story. What, is, what does Paul mean that it's being progressively revealed over the course of that story? A useful analogy, which, which I think comes from Augustine, is that the Old Testament is like a fully furnished but dark room. In other words, all the, all the furniture, if you will, of God's rescue is present in this darkened room, but you can only see it kind of dimly and in shadow. And then the good news comes in Jesus, the righteousness of God himself, and it turns on the light of all that had happened before. And, then we, and we all go, oh, that's what you were doing. Isn't that what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus? Shouldn't you, didn't you know? Haven't you read the Bible? Didn't you see? It was so clear. And he just turns on the light for him and us. And we're going to grasp this more clearly when we get into chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But for now, we're going to understand. You can go there, read it, study it this afternoon. We understand that the righteousness of God is being revealed in a new way every time the whole story of God is preached. Okay, that's what that means. Every time we proclaim this, we're, we're turning on lights for people in darkness so they can see they need rescue. And this revealed righteousness of God is from faith to faith. Isn't it fun to study the Bible and just grab every little phrase and start to understand how he's putting his argument together? What does this mean from faith to faith? Again, there is much discussion on what this phrase may mean. And here's my current understanding. I think Paul simply means that the ongoing work of God's salvation is received from start to finish by faith. New Living Translation, or it is by faith from first to last, New International Version. It is how he began in verses, in chapter 1, verse 16. The good news is God's power for all who have faith, for all who believe, and it is how he 
finishes by connecting an Old Testament prophetic word of this good news to his new covenant apostolic word of good news. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This quote from Habakkuk 2.4, the context where God is telling his prophet that a, the proud and arrogant Babylonians will fall, but the righteous Israelite will live by his faith in humble dependence on a righteous God. And Paul wants the Romans to see that this is no new good news. There is, there's foundation here. This is connected it's what God has always intended to do. It's what he's always been revealing. The righteous who are that way by faith will live. And the righteous will live by faith. It's a drumbeat for Paul. He's declared it three times in these two compact verses. Calvin, again, faith is this vessel with which we come empty and with the mouth of our souls open to seek God's grace. It is his work from beginning to end. Do you see that? All right. So, point two. Why, we, why may we be unashamed? An application of verses 16 and 17. Having done our best here to exposit verses 16 and 17, we now need to apply it to our lives. Paul was writing in an empire named Rome. And it is a sweet providence, I believe. I love how God works out where we'll be when we need it. Because we come to this text just days after national and state elections across the empire called America. And as I've watched the discussions around these elections, and I haven't spent a lot of time doing that, frankly, but when I do... It's almost impossible not to see people looking and longing for power. To get power or to receive benefits from those who have it and will use it on their behalf. And so much of it all, can you relate to this? So much of it all is driven by fear. Fear of, you know, those evil Republicans. Or fear of those evil Democrats. Or fear of inflation, the economy. Fear of climate change, of ethnic division, of social division, of issues of gender identity or confusion, human sexuality, poverty, immigration, foreign policy, foreign powers, the dark web, a resurgence of COVID and a return of a pandemic and all that that implies, of the lack of health care, affordable housing, taxes going up or taxes going down, on and on and on, fear. And as we talk about the good news, how about the news? <laughs> the media complex. Now, more than ever, I see a media that has an insatiable pursuit of ratings and the money that follows, a media that takes the bellows of their influence and fans the flames of fear in any and every way they can, constantly trying to keep us watching, keep us afraid, and keep us bickering and in division. With the result that an entire culture looks to broken powers to give the answer for who has the power to rescue them from whatever it is that they're afraid of, whether it be some particular issue or just, you know, the other guy. 
And into this mix, into this cauldron of fear and power struggles, political and industrial and economic forces and a never-ending clash with all kinds of opposing interests, into that mess steps Christians with our religion and our faith. Faith as a noun, a set of doctrines and beliefs, and faith as a verb, an active, trusting submission to our King, Jesus. And here's what I fear, family. I fear that we may be ashamed of the good news. So that when we step into the face of our culture and its people and its problems and its longing for power, we kind of, you know, shuffle our feet. Well, you know, you know, like uh, Jesus. With our eyes down, lacking boldness. And the world laughs at us. And the world shames us. The world says, don't give us your religion because it won't solve our problems. Don't give us your piety because it can't rescue us from what ails us. It is not valid, applicable, or powerful. Enough with your antiquated ideas and your non-relevant God. He and your faith have no place here. And they say this because it appears that we believe some pretty unbelievable things. We believe there is one triune God and not a plethora of gods or an impersonal consciousness at the heart of the universe. We believe that the single most important event in the history of the world is Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. We believe that Jesus' death was the atonement for all human evil, always and forever, not merely an example of suffering. We believe that a real God has placed this real, risen God-man, the exalted king at the helm of the universe. We believe that Jesus is the only way to God, not one of many ways to God and rescue and life. We believe that the gift of a Holy Spirit himself, someone that we cannot see, is a real person and experience, not the name of our religious consciousness. We believe that the church is a gathering of remade humans who are the people of this God and King and not a religious club with backward beliefs or Victoria-era morals. We believe that Jesus is actually, he is actually coming back one day as a king on a white horse in the sky and that on that day, every knee will bow. Every Jew and Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist and atheist and Scientologist and politician and president and communist. We believe that on that day there will be a final judgment after which will follow an everlasting life or everlasting destruction for every man and woman in this world, past, present, and future. Of course they think we're crazy. <laughs> Those are the beliefs that make this good news offensive and crazy. To Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish. They are shameful views 
in the words of Michael Byrd, because they seem entirely unjustified, morally offensive, and needlessly exclusive. How dare we believe that our God is the only God? How dare we say that a hookup culture demeans our sexuality? How dare we restrict marriage to a heterosexual couple made up of one biological man and one biological woman? How dare we violate the reproductive rights of women? How dare we keep worshiping some crazy rabbi from backwater Palestine when we could worship the state or better, Mother Earth. How dare we keep on, well, how dare we keep on being disciples of Jesus? Well, we dare. Because we are not ashamed. And it breaks my heart when Christians, man, me included, we walk away in the face of this collective shaming unable to make connections to the power of the good news for every single one of the issues that plagues our culture. Or worse, we desire to sequester ourselves, to separate out so we don't even have to engage. To engage a world that is looking for power and solutions in all the wrong places and from all the wrong people when what we need to do is believe to believe that the power of God to rescue humanity from the problem of sin, the problem of sin and all the downstream and devastating consequences of sin, which every single one of our societal and cultural issues is connected to and flows from, that the power of rescue from every one of those downstream issues is found in the good news of God and his son, Jesus Christ. That is what we need to do. We need to believe because we are obligated, verse 14, to do it, to believe the good news, to not be ashamed of it. And even more, it is up to us to understand the depth of the good news, the complexity and richness of the good news, and the all-encompassing nature of the good news. We're not supposed to be kindergartners in the school of the good news. So that instead of shuffling our feet and saying, well, you know, I guess this is all we have, we're bold and confident and joyful because we have and know the power that truly saves and rescues we must be thoughtful and intentional and studied and practiced enough in the good news doing that hard work and it's hard work so that we are schooled in how that power works itself out to cut the power of sin at the root and then it affects all of these downstream consequences. We have to see with our own eyes how the complicated effects of sin are dealt with by the power of God and his righteousness and justice as revealed in the good news. Are you following? We need to make the connections for ourselves in the world. We need to see how the good news relates to poverty and human sexuality and immigration and politics and gender identity and confusion and foreign policy and ethnic division and social division and healthcare and epidemic and on and on and on because that's what it does. It relates. It means something. It's relevant. It's powerful for all of it. And we must not tread the dangerous ground of ever thinking that we get beyond the good news. Oh, come on. Can I get an amen? We do not get beyond the good news. Oh, how often I've seen, I grew up 
in a church that, that thought that the good news is where you began the Christian life, that's what saved you, and then you went on living your merry way. The good news is necessary in all our lives, in every aspect of our lives. I mean, maybe it's that we've had a too small a view of the good news, and that's why we are, even if unintentionally, ashamed of it. We've shrunk it down to the cross, shrunk it down. We've shrunk it down to mere personal forgiveness from your problems. You've shrunk it down to church life and some religious observances, and then you rob it of its true power for wider application to the problems of the world. And that misunderstands the good news of the kingdom of God because the good news is the whole story. It is the news of the creation of a good world and humanity the way they were supposed to be. It is the tragic news of the fall with sin and all its effects affecting everything, which means that we have the answers for the way things are the way they are. Do you understand that? That that's part of the good news? We can explain. We understand the evil power behind Putin and election tampering and inflation and strife and division and all of it. We get that because we know the good news. And it is the glorious news of rescue, of the only power that can come up against that evil and rescue people from all of it. And we know the hope-giving, life-sustaining news of restoration. We know that there is a tension called the now and not yet. We are not tied up in knots over the incompleteness of the rescue because we know the way the rescue works out in stages. We are not flustered by charges of your way isn't actually working because we know that change works on God's timeline and not mine. And that one day, everything sad is going to come untrue. <laughs> Hallelujah. So we aren't shamed, family. We are not shamed into irrelevance and quietness. We will not crack under the pressure thinking God isn't who he said he is or that he's not keeping his promises because he is. And full salvation will come one day. And by the way, what is the alternative? What is the alternative to believing this? Trusting ourselves? <laughs> Trusting mankind? How's that working out for us? How many empty promises do we need to hear from politicians before we'll finally get they won't keep them? How many empty promises from graduation ceremony speakers who are promising this is the class that's going to change the world? No. We know the good news, the whole good news to explain where we are and why we are and the source of our hope and where we're going and how to get there and who will lead us and show us the way and his name is Jesus. We must be unashamed of the good news by guarding against the insidious shame that will fight its way into our behavior when we put a greater... See, we don't think. We don't think we're ashamed of the good news, but if we look closely, there's this insidious kind of shame that can fight its way into our behavior. Worship team, would you come up and finish here? Again, some answers from Michael Bird. It's been so helpful to me this week. We are ashamed of the good news. Don't watch them. Listen. We are ashamed of the good news when we are afraid to tell it. 
We are ashamed of the good news when we're too intimidated to uphold it. When we're too lazy to teach it. When we make things other than the good news the center of our fellowship. We are ashamed of the good news when we affirm any political, economic, or social position that denies what King Jesus taught about the poor, the orphan, the sick, the elderly, or the homeless. He said that is not true Christianity. We are ashamed of the good news when we make excuses for the unchristian behavior of our political heroes. When we spend more money on chocolate than charity. When our social life becomes more important than our church life. We are ashamed of the good news when we make other things more important than the good news. And we are ashamed of the good news when we spend more time being shaped by Fox News or CNN News than we do pondering and studying and being shaped by and telling others about the good news. Have I sufficiently stepped on everybody's toes? Family, let's be unashamed of the good news because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith for faith, for it is written, the righteous one shall live by faith. Amen.